we've walked through Psalms 19 before. It's very familiar to you. I realize that. Uh, there's three sections to it, and I went back and looked. The last time we did it was on a Sunday night several months ago. But I, always, I did the same thing then that I almost always do. I spend all of my time on the first couple of points. And by the time I get to the last point that I really want to spend time on, i got to emergency land that plane because we're 45, 50 minutes into a sermon. And I don't get to spend the time that I want to on that last point. So I, I went back through my notes and found that I frustrated myself very same way. So I don't want to do that, but I do want to walk you back through Psalms 19 and see the three distinct divisions that we find in this psalm. And again, we'll spend our last time, or most of our time on the last one. But the first division comes in in verse 1, where David talks about the general revelation of the glory of God in creation. First part of verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And so he spends those first six verses with this general revelation that's been known, made known to all of humanity, that all of creation sings praises to the glory of God. And we're a church that talks a lot about creation, so you guys could probably exegete and expound on those verses just as well as I can. But the second section comes down in in verse 7, and it's not the general revelation of the glory of God. This is the particular revelation of the glory of God in His Word. This is not general, it's it's specific or it's particular. Notice verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. And then David gives us, I think it is six words to describe the Word of God. Verse 7, if you'll notice, there's two, the law of the Lord, and then the second half, the testimony of the Lord. Verse 8, there's two the precepts of the Lord, and then the commandment of the Lord. Verse 9, my favorite, two more. He refers to the Word of God as the fear of the Lord and the judgments of the Lord. And then at the end of every one of those, he's such a balanced psalm, he uses adjectives to describe the Word of God. Verse 7, it's perfect and it's sure, if you'll notice those two words at the end. Verse 8, the Word of God is right and it's pure. Verse 9, the Word of God endures and it's true. And I know I'm flying through this, but you can walk it back on YouTube. We've done this before, but if you'll notice in verse 10, he then compares the Word of God to two things that are absolutely precious, honey and gold. And so he says, you know, when you think about the Word of God, listen, you can take the sweetest thing you could ever put in your mouth. And it's better than that. And you could think of the most expensive thing that you could ever possess. It's better than that. And so those are the first two divisions. And you can understand why this is one of my favorite psalms. But the third division is where, again, we'll rest this morning. And it's not the general revelation. It's not the particular revelation. It's the revelation of the glory of God applied in His people. And that is truly personal And it's unique. So David moves from creation to the Word of God and then into the people of God. And here's the thought that you're left with. Where there is the true knowledge of God in a saving sort of relationship, where there is the true knowledge of God, there is a clear demonstration of the character of God. Now that should challenge your soul. 
You can look at creation and you can praise the glory of God. You can read the Word of God and understand the person of God. But when you see the child of God, then you see God. Because they're being made like God in their character. That's humbling, yes, but that's true of us. And that's what we're being made into. Now, here's what's unique. And I want you to see the shift here in David because... You know, verse 7, verse 1, obviously a hard start. Verse 7, a hard start on a new subject. But there's a blending before there's a hard start. There's no hard start on us. There's a blending between the Word and the servant. Look in verse 11. Moreover, the third section, by them, the Word of God, your servant is warned in keeping them, the Word of God or the commandments of God, there is great reward And then David asks this question, who can discern his errors? No hard start, just a blending. And I'm convinced this is what David has done, and it's absolutely marvelous. When David brings himself in relationship to the Word of God, he immediately knows that there is a problem. David's talked about the glory of God in creation. He's talked about the glory of God in the Word. But when he talks about the glory of God in himself, he knows it's there, but he understands that there's a problem. And so he asks the question, who can discern his errors? Now, I immediately want to jump to the Gospel and tell you that there's coming a day when we will look at you and we will see the glory of God in all of its fullness and there will be no errors. So that's the end of the story, and that alone is enough to worship God. When we are seen in glory, we will be a perfect reflection of that glory in our Father. But right now, not the case. There's errors. There's breakdown in that glory in us. And so David asks this profound question, who can discern his errors? But you know, that's the very purpose of the law. And, and we'll talk a lot about this in Romans 6 and 7. But that's exactly what the law is supposed to do. We imp- superimpose ourselves, I guess that's the word, over the holy word of God. And there's more holes in us than Swiss cheese, right? It's just not supposed to be that way. Yet, we're supposed to reflect the glory of God too. But that's okay because that's the Word of God doing the very purpose for which God gave it. Because when we see those holes, where do we go? We run straight to the one who is without holes, who was a perfect reflection of the glory of the Father, and that's the Son of God. So it's okay when we bring ourselves up against the Word of God and we see all of that and we ask that question, who in the world can discern all of these errors? That's okay because it causes us to turn away from ourselves and run to the one who had no errors. Who's absolutely perfect in reflecting and in doing the Word of God from His very heart. Okay? So let's deal with that question in respect to us. Who can discern his errors? The King James says, who can understand what's going on, really? If you want to use King James and then transliterate it, who can understand what's going on in his heart? Now, let me introduce that thought because the church has been led astray in so many ways. And when I I wrote that note down, I realized probably every pastor 
Every faithful pastor of every generation has said that. And every one of us would have argued, yeah, but our days are worse as far as the church being led astray, because I'm certainly convinced that in our day it's worse, that we've been led astray. And the, the means to accomplish that has always been the same. Satan's always used the same tool. Paul warned uh, the church at Ephesus about it when he was praying with the elders on the beach before he left. He said, from among you men will rise up and lead the flock astray after yourselves. In other words, this is what Satan does. He, he raises up a man with a strong personality. People like to follow that man, and they follow behind that personality. Just check every, almost every, 99% of every massive, large church, and what you'll find at the helm is a strong personality behind the pulpit. People want to follow that personality, and what that personality turns around and does is he preaches in a way that pleases the people and they in turn want to follow that pleasure. It's the same trick over and over again. Remember that passage about the tickling of the ears? Here's the end of that passage, in, or end of that verse in 2 Timothy 4. It says, They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and they'll turn away their ears from the truth. So that's, the, that's the, the method, I guess, that Satan uses to lead the church astray. But in our day, one of the most prominent messages that you'll find leading the church astray is this idea of self-love. Making notes, that's the phrase you want to write down with all I just said. Self-love. They're trying to communicate to you that you need to love yourself. You need to accept yourself. And in fact... I don't know if I had said that out loud or something because a sermon popped up on my social media about that very thing. It's a little frightening that Google can do that. And so here's, this is what the pastor said, quoting Matthew 22, where the Lord is talking about the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God, right? And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor like yourself. And he said, there it is. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. And I'm like, ha, that's tricky. But that's not what that passage is saying at all. You see, your problem is you love yourself so much that you don't love God like you should and you sure don't love your neighbor like you should. The point of that passage is teaching you, I realize you love yourself, but really the Lord's saying what I want you to do is to learn to love other people like that. And if you can love other people like that, you get the point of the very passage, okay? So that's the tickling of the ears that's going on, this, this idea of self-love. And every time I write down self-love, and I know I've mentioned this before because it just sticks in my mind, Paul Washer's comments about how the gospel is preached in our day, and so he goes in this back-and-forth conversation kind of style where the pastor says, God loves you, to which Paul stops and says, wait a minute, God loves me? Oh, I love me too! That's self-love, and that's the gospel today, and that's the gospel we want to hear, hear because that's the gospel that, that tickles the ears because we really do love ourselves. Now, I don't think the opposite of self-love is self-loathing. I'm sure that there have been those who, who have taught that um, 
over the centuries. I, I have no idea. I didn't spend my time trying to find that, I, but I'm sure people have done that. But I don't think you're going to find a passage anywhere that talks about your need to hate yourself. But what you will find, a number of places and a number of passages that tells you you do need to hate something about yourself, and that's your sin. In fact, the Bible will tell you you need to loathe it, you need to despise it, and you need to hate it. So there is things that are going on inside of you that you desperately need to learn to dislike. But I'm, again, I'm so afraid that we love ourselves that we don't hate anything about ourselves but if we do see something that's questionable or suspect, we just justify it and kind of move on over it or kind of slide on around it. So here's the thing that I think probably is the most biblical, and if I ever change it, I'll let you know. Not self-love, not self-loathing, but, but self-examination or self-consideration. Or I wrote another word down somewhere in my notes. I don't know if I can find it. Um, I don't see it there. If I run across it, I'll remind you. Oh, self-awareness. There it is. Self-examination, self-awareness. Now, if Scott was here, he may have jumped up at this point and rebuked me and said he's not preaching the gospel. Because if I say self-examination... And I don't qualify that. I've entered into the realm of philosophy, not the Bible. Because there's also a big push in our day that tells us that we need to know what's going on inside of ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. In fact, I did do a little research on that. And you can find a great deal on the Internet about self-examination. It's very, again, very well promoted. But one of the most prominent books that teaches this is it was actually written in 1972. And here's the title of the book. The title is an oxymoron. I don't think the author realized that, but here you go. A Theory of Objective Self-Awareness. You can't do, you can't do that. You can't be objective about yourself. You can only be subjective because you're working just about yourself. It's an oxymoron. But I want to read the summary of the title and see if you can find the error. You need to be able to find the error. If you can't, you need to really pay attention to the sermon this morning. So here's, here's the description of the book. When we focus our attention on ourselves, that's not the problem, that's actually a command. When we focus our attention on ourselves, we evaluate and compare our behavior to our internal standards and values. What's the problem? Is it glaring? You know what the problem is? When we evaluate ourselves, our standard is not within ourselves. And that's what the book just said. When we evaluate ourselves, we don't look to our internal standards and values Joey doesn't live by Joey's moral code. Joey lives by God's moral code. And so if I really want to evaluate myself, there's only one place that I must look, and where is that? Word of God. Now, this is how dangerous this is, because I remember several years ago before Paige and I actually left, that we were at a church. We got invited to several churches to just talk about, um, preach, whatever, uh, about where we were going and what we were going to do. And immediately after service at this particular church, a school teacher came up to me and she had 
someone had given her this book, and it was the most profound book, and she absolutely loved it, so she had bought the book for some of her friend teachers at school, and she had bought the book for some of her friends at church, and she wanted me to, wanted to give me a copy of that book. And these are the sort of things that it was based on. It was philosophy. And she's just passing this book out at church. And that's how easily, and you might say innocently, but I mean, come on, be aware of what you're doing. But that's how things are brought into the church, and that's how philosophy was introduced, that idea was introduced into that church. We don't live by philosophy. We live by the truth of the Word of God. But anyway, if you study that, if you read about that, and it's good to to know some things about it, there's actually six levels of self-awareness or self-examination. There's level zero, where you have absolutely no self-awareness, and there's level five, where you have extreme or explicit self-awareness. So there's actually levels that philosophy wants to carry you through to help you understand what's going on inside of you. Now, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, you're way ahead of the game because we've talked about some of these things. We've talked about anthropology, which is the study of man. And there's a great deal. Everything that you need to know about yourself is taught to you in the Word of God. Number one, Genesis 1. The most profound thing about everyone in this room is found in Genesis 1. And what is that? You were created in the image of God. Nothing about you is more glorious than that reality right there. But the worst thing about you is taught in Genesis 3. When Adam stands up as our head or our representative and he kicks at the wisdom of God, he spurns or turns away from the Word of God. And when he does that, he plunges all of us into absolute ruin. And so there we are, Genesis 1 created in the image of God. Genesis 3, Genesis 3 fallen short of the glory of God. And those two truths right there will carry you a long way in understanding about yourself. Nathan's been dealing with a really profound passage in the Old Testament, uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, where it talks about us. And it says there that the heart is more deceitful than all else. And Nathan told us when he says heart, he's not talking about the organ, nor is he talking about the emotional center. He's talking about the whole man. The inner man, if you will. And so the inner man is the most deceitful thing that can be found, and it lives inside of you. You see, everything you ever wanted to know about yourself is found in Scripture. But to go on and examine yourself and go on and do some things about that, the only, again, the only place to turn is toward God, is toward the Word of God. Now, here's the reality when we talk not about self-love, self-loathing, but when we talk about self-examination, very few people know themselves. Very few people understand themselves. And if you're unsaved or you're unregenerate, there's nothing you can do about that. The Bible teaches you that. I mean, even though you're made in the image of God, you're without the knowledge of God, According to Romans 3, you have no understanding of God. According to 1 Corinthians 2, you have, you're, made in, you're made in the image of a spiritual God, but according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, you have no ability to comprehend any spiritual truth. Therefore, you cannot rightly comprehend yourself. And it only gets worse because as you reject the knowledge of God, what does God do in Romans 2? He gives you over to a depraved mind. 
And so this is amazing, but you define yourself by the things that is going to destroy you. That is the depravity of your mind. All of a sudden you proudly boast in the very things for which God will judge you and condemn you for all of eternity. That is, a, that is ignorance to the highest extreme, but that's the world that we live in today. But let's sweep them aside. We're concerned about you. Now, the Christian has the opportunity for understanding themselves. Certainly they've been given the resources to understand themselves, but they don't because they're immature. Now, lest I find any of you here this morning, I want you to listen to the reasons that you're immature and don't really understand what's going on with the sin inside of you. Number one, you have an insufficient knowledge of the Word of God. I mean, I meet a lot of people, Christians, who know the facts of the Bible, but they don't understand the truths of the Bible. For instance, they can probably tell you about who David's first father-in-law was and how wicked that man was. I'll send your mind spinning there for just a second. But they can't tell you about the principles that we see in the life of David that they need to apply to their own lives. They've got facts, but they don't have wisdom in understanding the Word of God and how to live. And because they have an insufficient knowledge of God, they have an insufficient knowledge of man, anthropology. They have an insufficient knowledge of theology proper or God Himself, and it leaves them terribly handicapped. If you're immature, here are some things that you're focused on. And again, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm trying to lead you into maturity. The immature are too focused on the sins of culture and the world around them. The immature is too focused on the sins of other people. The immature only has a general knowledge of their own sin. For example, I've never committed adultery, therefore I'm sexually moral. If I had a button up here. <clears throat> Wrong. But that's how a lot of people think. I don't drink. I don't cuss. Well, you know, <laughs> that's great. But let's just open up the window and the doors of your heart and let's just watch defilement pour out of your house. But the immature looks at the external things and they really never consider the internal things. They're unaware of their own motivations and desires that are absolutely contrary to the holy nature of God. And here's one that we'll get into in a few minutes. They don't listen to their own words. And if you learn to listen to your own words, it will give you a window view of what's going on in your heart. And we'll see David do that in this psalm. Now, the mature stays vigilant over what is going on in his inner person. He understands what the Lord has given him. He understands that the Spirit of God dwells within him and the Spirit of God is going to lead him in truth. Therefore, he spends a great deal of time in truth or the Word of God. He understands the holy nature of God. He understands that his own heart is the most deceitful thing about him and so he is wary of his heart. He listens to his own words because he knows that his words will give him a great clue as to what's going on inside of him. It'd be great if you'd set your phone to record 
And then when you get home at night during supper, kind of bump it up to 1.5 so you won't be there for the rest of the night and just listen to everything that you said. That would be pretty humbling for us all. But your words give you a window into what's going on inside of your heart. So this is what the mature man does. He is constantly watching over his own soul. If you're taking notes, jot down 1 Timothy 4.16. That's the passage that I always go to when I'm either ordaining a deacon or we're confirming an elder. Wherever I am speaking to men, especially in ministry, I always reference 1 Timothy 4.16, but it applies to you as well. This is what Paul tells the young preacher. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. In other words, that's the order. You have to understand it. First comes you. You pay attention to you. You know what's going on with you. You be concerned about your character. And then you pour yourselves over the Scriptures. And then he follows up with this idea or this word rather of persevere in these things. And that word literally means, I want you to stay right there. And if you'll do that, you'll see maturity in your life. When Don, Steve's dad, uh, stayed with us that time, we wouldn't see him till when, babe? After lunch, I guess it was. He'd wake up early. I'd hear him go to the refrigerator because he loves orange juice. We bought him orange juice. It's the only thing he has for breakfast. Go to the refrigerator, pour him a glass of orange juice, back into the bedroom that we gave him. Wouldn't see him till lunch. You know what he was doing? Pouring over himself and the scriptures. That almost seems selfish a little bit, doesn't it? But he understood the truth of God's Word. I have two great concerns in my life. As a pastor, I need to be deeply concerned about my own sin and my own character. So I'm going to spend the morning with God in prayer. And then I'm going to turn the rest of that time to the Word of God, understanding more about how I need to repent and reflect more of the glory of God in myself. That's what mature Christians do. And now back to Psalms 19, that's exactly what I'm convinced we see David doing this morning. He's one that paid close attention to himself. So let's get into the verse. Notice verse 12, the second part, he refers to equip me of hidden faults or hidden errors. In other words, David is aware that there are things that lurk in the deep recesses of his heart of which he is totally unaware in other words, I know that they're there, but I really can't tell you what they are. I just absolutely know that they're there because he understood who he was, right? Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 4, 4. For those of you taking notes, you'll look at it later. Paul says this, I am conscious of nothing, but that doesn't make me innocent. In other words, Paul's saying, you know, I'm reflecting on my life right now. I don't see any need for repentance or nothing's coming to mind, but... That doesn't mean I'm an innocent man. I know that there's hidden things in my heart. So what does David mean with this idea of hidden errors or hidden faults? Because the first thing that we think of when we think of hidden is those things that we hide from other people. Man, that's embarrassing. But we all do that. I mean, do you have a conversation with one person? If I can have a particular conversation with Chris... But if I'm going to meet with my son-in-law, 
I'm going to have an entirely different conversation with him and I'm going to use different words. What would we call that? What am I being? Hypocrite. It's on most of y'all's lips. You're a hypocrite. And so we do this. We appear so pious and so religious to some, but then we get around others and we appear like someone entirely differently. That's when we hide what's really going on in our hearts. And we do that and it doesn't work, but that's not what David's talking about at all. Please don't do that. You know better than that. Just repent of that right now and get it over with. Stop being two people and be one. He's not talking about things we hide from God at all. You know you can't do that. Keep a finger in Psalms 19 and go with me to Psalms 139. It's been a little while since I read this to you, so I do want to read it to you again. Psalms 139, let me read the first ten verses. This is what happens when you try to hide things from God. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. Notice, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways, even before there is a word on my tongue. There's thoughts and there's words. David will talk about them both in Psalm 19. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. Verse 5, you've enclosed me behind and before you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, is too high for me. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or in death, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the furthest or remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. So where is it, as you're going back to Psalms 19, that you can hide something from God? Where's that little place that you've got that you can tuck that little dark thing away and keep it out of God's sight? It doesn't exist. There's absolutely no place. In fact, I think, I'm pretty convinced about this, the only really place that you can hide sins from or the only person that you can hide sins from is from yourself and that's exactly what sin does you see sin blinds and sin deceives and so really the only one that we can hide our sin from is from ourselves because when we see it and and we recognize it we justify it or we excuse it or we ignore it And we don't want to deal with it. But most of the time, I think we're just totally unaware of it. And we say things we shouldn't say. And we think things we shouldn't think. And we do things, therefore, we shouldn't do. And we go about just absolutely oblivious that we're violating the holiness of God. So as far as hiding goes, I I guess from yourself you can be successful, but that's about it. But David's not trying to hide those things. He's trying to deal with those things. 
So when he says, acquit me of my hidden errors back in Psalms 19, he's talking about the attitudes and desires and thoughts that are absolutely contrary to the character of God that violate the Word of God. And he knows that he is unaware, but he also knows that he's accountable. Listen, just because you don't know about them doesn't mean you're not going to be judged for them. Here's you another passage, Leviticus 5.17. This is what the Lord says in the law. If a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord God has commanded not to be done, though he is unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. You see why David's concerned about these things? I mean, I brought myself into relationship with the Word of God and immediately goes, immediately David says, Lord... Acquit me of my hidden, thought, my hidden errors, my, my hidden ways. Release me from those. We'll talk about that word for a minute. Because he understands he's guilty for those things as well. And let me keep going. Verse 13. He moves from the hidden things to the presumptuous things. Verse 13. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Now, those are ones that are done knowingly, willingly, and pridefully. In other words, if you want an example in your notes, just write the word Bathsheba. Did David know adultery was wrong? All day long. Did David know murder was wrong? All day long. Did he do it anyway? Do you ever do anything like that? I mean, you've done it, and you're sitting in the middle of it, or you're laying in bed at night reflecting on it, and you just go, what is wrong with me? I know that's wrong. There's no question about it. I even sense that moment before I stepped out into it, I really sensed the Holy Spirit going, wait! And I just kind of just stepped over on in there. And I just kept right on walking. Y'all ever do that? I know the answer to that. You don't have to answer that. These are the presumptuous sins. These are the sins that are born out of a rebellious heart. These are the sins that are not ignorant of truth. They know truth. They just don't care about truth. And by the way, is there a sacrifice for these types of sins? No. There's no sacrifice. There's only a great need for grace. All right, let's get into dealing with this. What, what do we do concerning these things? You're, you're in Psalms 19, and I'll deal with verse 12 and a few words that he gives us, but let me give you just one passage outside of this. I don't like to do that, but it kind of gives you an overall picture of what God's doing or what David's doing right here. Psalms 139, the Psalms that we were in just a moment ago, verse 23, listen to what David writes there. Search me, God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, if you want a sermon about, if you want a summary about what David's about to do, there's your summary. Psalms 139, 23. He's just walked up to the Lord and he says, okay, deal with all this. I want you to open up the doors and the windows and let's just deal with all the stuff that's going on in here. And so that's what he does. Now back in... in Psalm 19, verse 12, notice the first word, acquit. 
If you have the NASB, it's acquit me of hidden faults or acquit me of my hidden errors. This word literally means make me innocent or let me go unpunished. I know they're there. I don't know what they are. But I know that they violate the holiness of God. I need you to let me go free unpunished. In other words, David's request is a request for what the gospel does. And we've talked about this in Romans 3 and 4. Justification is a declaration by God. It's not because we're innocent. No, we're guilty. And yet God declares us justified or innocent because punishment has been meted out on His Son. So David understands this. I know I've done wrong. I know it's inside of me. I know I deserve to be punished. But God, please let me go unpunished. And you realize through the gospel, you and I go unpunished. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Punishment still gets poured out, but you and I are acquitted of all those things that we've spent an entire lifetime doing and we had no idea that they were wrong. All of those thoughts that went unchecked out into the realm of the, whoa, don't go there. All of those desires that we entertain, we might not have acted on, but we certainly entertain them in their heart. All of those things you deserve punishment for, yet through the gospel, we're acquitted, not guilty, because that punishment has been poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, look at verse 13, verse 8. This is a really good word. Keep back your servant from those presumptuous sins. So he goes from the unknown to the known. And I knew it and I did it anyway. So this is his prayer now. Lord, keep me back from presumptuous sins. And I think a better translation of that is the word restrain. Now, I'm sure you guys have prayed this before. Lord, if you just grab a hold of me and keep me from doing these dumb things, I wouldn't have to cry so much and I wouldn't have to repent so much. Just stop me. Wouldn't that be a glorious answer to prayer? Just every time you just start walking in sin, somebody just smacks you in the back of the head, knocks you over and you get up and got enough sense to turn around and go back the way in which you came. That'd be absolutely wonderful. But that's David's prayer right here. Restrain me. And if you want an example, I won't take you there now. 1 Samuel 25. It's a great example. Let me run through the story just briefly. There was a wicked man named Nabal. And David's men had been protecting Nabal's shepherds. In other words, Nabal had like 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, I think it goes. And so David's men would protect them from guys that would come in and, you know, steal the sheep, steal the goats, go to war, all that stuff. David had been protecting him. So there was a time where David went to, David sent some young men to Nabal for him to bless them because he'd been blessing them for quite some time now. And rather than blessing them, Nabal cursed them. And so these young men go back to David and said, hey, we went down to Nabal like he told us. You know what he did? He just cursed us and sent us away empty-handed. David reaches for his sword. He straps it on his side and he says, let me go see about this. In other words, David says, I'm going to go take care of this right now. And do you remember Nabal's wife's name? Abigail. What does Abigail do? She grabs a bunch of food. 
a bunch of gifts. She runs out to David's men and she gives them to David's men to pacify them and says, please, I know my husband's a foolish man. I hope you women don't ever say that about <laughs> your men around here. I know my husband's a foolish man. Please accept this gift and don't, don't come and destroy him. And you know what David says about that? He praises God for restraining him because he was about to sin against him. In other words, David says, I'll go fix this myself. And God says, no, boy, I'm going to restrain you. Put that sword up. I'll fix Nabal. That needs to be your prayer because I know that you do commit presumptuous sins often and you need to beg God for the grace of restraining you. Like you do your two-year-olds when you wrap two arms around them and you're just like, no, you're not going anywhere right now. Ask God to do that for you until you get enough sense about you to lay your sword down and do right. Now, verse 14, well, if I don't deal with it all, I get frustrated. Notice the second part of 13, let them not rule over me. Now, that's a gospel word because back in verse 13a, he uses the word slave. It's translated servant. 13b, he uses the idea of rule or master. In other words, David is asking God that his sin might not master him. Now, let me ask you this. Does the gospel fix that? Yes, without question, the gospel gives you a new master and it's no longer your sin, but it's who? The Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, David's praying for the gospel here, okay? Equip me of hidden faults, keep me back, don't let my sin master me or restrain me. And we'll deal with that in Romans 6, especially verse 17 and 18. But then David comes to this last part, and I'm telling you from a personal perspective, from a devotional perspective, this has been my constant prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. And I always quote in the NIV because that's where I memorized it as a kid, but there you go. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is to me the most significant if you want to get serious about your sin. David knows that your words reveal your character. Again, it's a window into your heart. So to wake you up just a little bit, stay in Psalms 19, but run to Matthew 12 for me real quick. Let me give you a minute to do that. We're almost done. Don't, don't let me lose you here at the end. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 33. I'm going to read to you just, I guess, four or five verses right here. Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit is good, or make the tree bad and its fruit is bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure or his heart what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure or his heart what is evil. I tell you that every careless word that people speak, 
they will give an account for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now you understand David's prayer. Let the words of my mouth be pleasing. Guys, really pay attention to your words. They're very important. They really are an overflow of what is going on in your heart. If your words are bent out of frustration, anger, unforgiveness, accusations, blame, you got a lot of stuff in your heart that you, you need to repent of. Not whoever you're speaking about. Stop worrying about them. Remember, remember Paul's command, pay attention to yourself. You need to go before God and just let them be and be concerned over your own sin. Pay attention to your words. They're very important. Let the words of my mouth, right? Secondly, in the meditation of my heart, you can make your way back to Psalms 19 if you want. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Now let me give you two words here. One you'll know from um, Nathan on Sunday night. The word meditation can also be translated music or whisperings. Now you can see why they translate it into meditations, but I like the word whisper a little bit better. In other words, nobody knows the song that's playing in your heart but you. Because you don't play that for everybody. You like to keep that quiet. Something happened this week. A sinner, someone who doesn't know the Lord, wanted to do something that affected one of my kids. You know what my first song that started playing in my heart was? Where's my sword? We're talking about a lost person here. Where was the song about redeeming grace? Where was the song in my heart about sharing the glories of God in the person of Christ? Where was the song about the cross? Well, I couldn't hear that song because the song about the sword was playing in my heart. And then the words came. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. And I changed the song. You really need to pay attention to the song that's playing in your own heart. Man, that's critical. Because if you let it keep playing over and over and over again on repeat, it's going to affect your actions and you're going to wind up dishonoring the glory of God and playing your part as a fool. Listen to that song. The last thing that I want to mention to you is, is how David wants to affect his words and affect his heart in, in 14b. Notice what he says there. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. The NASB word is be acceptable in your sight. You know what that word is? That's the same word that's used in the law in regard to the sacrifices. I won't make you turn because we're, we're running over, I guess, but... 
If you're taking notes, Leviticus 22, 17 through 21. Let me just read it to you and you listen for the words acceptable, okay? Because it's the same word. This is what the Lord says in regard to the law and the sacrifices. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them, Any man of the house of Israel or the aliens in Israel who presents his offering whether it is any of their, their votive or any of their freewill offerings, which they present to the Lord for a burnt offering, for you to be accepted, it must be a male without defect from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. And when a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or a freewill offering of the herd of the flock, it must be perfect. Excuse me, it must be perfect in order to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. In other words, God says the sacrifice must be perfect in order that you might be perfect. The sacrifice has to be accepted for you to be accepted. And so here's David's prayer Lord, let my words be accepted. Let my heart, the meditations or the song in my heart, be accepted by you as like a sacrifice. I don't know that I can leave you with a better prayer than that. I don't know that I can really leave you with a better desire than that. Now, it does say, let the words, in other words, David's not going to Affect the words. David's not going to affect the heart. Let them be acceptable. David knows he's turning to a God that can make his words acceptable. And David knows that he's turning to a God that can make the meditations of his heart acceptable. But he's begging God to do those very things. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning. Beg God to do those very things for you. Ask Him to acquit you even though you're guilty in your heart. Ask Him that that your sins not might rule over you or, or master you. Ask Him to restrain you from presumptuous sins, but then beg God to take your words and sanctify them and make them holy so that your first response will give glory to God and ask God to take that song that's playing repeat in your heart and just sanctify that song and make that song holy in order that your responses might be holy in all that you do. So to sum up this song, here you go. Lord, rescue me from my sin and sanctify my inner man, my words and my heart. Oh Lord, my rock and my what? What's the last word? My Redeemer. Because you're in desperate need of redemption. You're in desperate need of rescuing. Because you have hidden errors. You have presumptuous sins. You have a mouth that won't glorify God. And you've got a heart that exalts yourself. David knew it when he took a look on the inside of him. And if you'll take a look, you'll see the same thing. Here's the good news. You've got a Redeemer that can rescue you from all of that. And sanctify you and make you holy in His sight. Let's pray.